did an informal survey over this last week where I went up to people and I, and I asked them a question. I said, you know, when you were first a Christian, when early in your life or whenever it was that you put your trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that what he did, he did for you. Um, what, what did you hear in those early days about uh, the end times, about uh, eschatology is the theological term, the state of the end times, about Jesus' second return, and who told you these things, and, and what did it produce in you when you heard these things? Now, it's totally unscientific, but I would say seven out of ten people said what they heard produced in them anxiety. Seven out of ten, just it produced you could use the word concern if you want to go a little lighter on that, but it was like a little, little scary, you know, is what, what they would say when they heard these things. Now, everybody doesn't fall under, and I'm not going to say seven out of ten of you, but I, I, I would venture to say half of us would probably go under the concern area, and other, the other half and another, but um, everyone doesn't fit under just one. Nate uh, Souza, you, you know, he's not up here today, but Nate, you know, the bearded one playing the guitar, music director, Nate Actually, I was asking him with a group, and Nate said, man, I was stoked. And I went, really? He said, yeah, I was stoked. And I said, well, what were you stoked about? And he said, well, I just thought that does not sound boring. And as a guy, kid, you know, he just got, got fired up about it. I don't think it would surprise you to know that for, for me, when I began to hear some of these things, it created, for me, it goes on a scale, but concern to anxiety to this, I, God is my witness, I was terrified, scared me to death. Now, let me tell you why. You know, I'm growing up, my teen years in the 70s, uh, adolescent teen years, I was not a Christian. I was not, uh, you know, raised in a, in a Christian home uh, where, you know, the gospel was taught. Uh, I didn't go to church regular, regularly. I, I, I had a Bible, and I can tell you this, what I, here's what I knew about the Bible. That thing is hard to read. And that's all I can tell you about the Bible. Now, in the 70s, uh, a book came out, and some of you are going to remember this one. It's still uh, in the top 100 best-selling books of all time by a guy named Hal Lindsey. And you guys, some of you smiling, knowing this book. What's the name of the book? Yell it out. The Late Great Planet Earth. And I've got the original cover, which some of you still have in your libraries, I'm sure. And uh, as you notice on the bottom, it says, A Penetrating Look at Incredible Prophecies Involving This generation. So now I didn't read the whole thing, but I, I would just, people would tell me a little bit about it. And you know, this book covers, a, you know, it's got this image of heat coming off of it, and there's a reason why, and the sun down there in the, the, the bottom right. Um, now, the book actually became a movie uh, two or three years later, and uh, here's the movie poster. Now, you tell me, if you don't know how it's going to end, but they tell you this is what the Bible says, what does that do to you? I mean, honestly, I'm being very serious. It created tremendous fear. I'm like, oh my goodness. And then, and then I got a tract. And I remember this, and I don't remember much, but I remember this. It was a little you know, Bible tract, and it was uh, black and white drawings. And on the front of it, it said the end of time or end times. And you would open this thing up, and it was drawings of What's the, what the Bible says is going to happen in the end, and they use words like Gog and Magog and Armageddon, and this great battle's going to happen. 
And, uh, and then it had scripture in there. Again, and I'm not, th- I'm not saying it's totally wrong, but it had scripture in there, and it, and it said in there, quoted Ezekiel. And I think I'd ever, I have no idea what, you know, Ezekiel, but it's a book in the Bible. And it said there's going to be a great battle, and at the end of that great war, the end of the world, they are going to burn the weapons of war for seven years. And then you flip the page, and there's a call-out box. And when there's a call-out box, that means... This is what you need to know. And, of course, I looked at it, and it said that the Soviet Union had developed a new type of material that was lighter than steel but stronger than steel. And they were now making all of their weapons of this material. And this material would actually burn like coal or firewood. Yeah, it's the end, you know. I mean, this is the Cold War. I'm 16, 17 years old. Uh, created a tremendous amount of, of uh, fear for me. We've come in our study of Mark's gospel to a chapter. The longest teaching Jesus does in Mark. It's called the Olivet Discourse as he's on the Mount of Olives. Uh, Matthew, Luke recorded as well. And he is speaking about these things. Uh, The second return. You know, I don't think they even figured out the first coming. And he's already talking to them about when he comes again. And I'm not being, I'm being serious when I say that. It's a bit confusing, I think, to them. I, I want you to know, and this, you know, I am one of those people that, uh, I, do not know how it's all going to end. I, I cannot give you a dogmatic stance on this. I, am, I remain in process. I know he's coming back, but I'm not going to, I can't answer all your questions, and I myself am still in process, and that may shock you as someone who's been to seminary. I'm one of your teaching pastors, but I am, and I don't think anyone can be truly dogmatic on these events at the end of time. Now, while there, there, there are many things, we, we just, y'all, we just can't know for sure. Now, we're gonna, Michael's going to pick up the second part next week. We're going to do this in two parts. Uh, Jesus doesn't answer all our questions. Paul doesn't answer all the questions. You know, the Bible doesn't answer all the questions we have. There, well, there's, some, there, there, there's just so many things we, can't, we really can't know for sure. There are a few things that we can Okay? There's a lot that we, that we can't know, but there are a few that we can know for sure. And wouldn't that be in part why Jesus takes the time to speak of these things here? They're recorded in three different gospels. There are some things we can know for sure. And what I want to say, and this is where the message is going, and this is the message in a sentence, basically, is that when, when, when we... When we know for sure, okay, what the Bible tells us about these times, rather than producing concern or even anxiety, I want to suggest to you that it produces an ever-deepening and abiding confidence. I mean, just confidence that God's in control, that I am secure, and the Holy Spirit is, is at work through me. God's in control, I'm secure, and the Holy Spirit is at work through me, even as all these things are unraveling or happening around us. That's what it produces in the person who genuinely trusts 
in the life, death, and resurrection of, of Christ. Okay, one last thing before we dive into the text. I'm actually going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. Over the course of the next 25 minutes... Uh, you are going to think that the predators scored because, and I don't know when this is going to happen, I just know it's going to happen that uh, some horns are going to go off in here. And I'm telling you beforehand so that you are prepared. Now, the second time those horns go off, I just want you to know we're getting close to the end. Okay, everybody ready for that? You know, you'll be... You'll know when that happens, and rather than when that happens, rather than, than it being a distraction, here's why, I'm, here's why I'm telling you this, so that you won't be surprised, and you won't be distracted when it happens, and you'll keep focused on what we're talking about here, because this is very, very important. Okay, chapter 13, verses 1 through 23, they'll pick up the second half next week. I've got three, three headings I'm going to give you, buildings, birth pangs, abomination. Here's how the, here's how the section's going to break out. Verses 1 and 2, buildings. I'm going to talk about that. And then we're going to go to birth pangs. That's verses 3 to 13. And then the last part is going to be abomination. Buildings, birth pangs, abomination. 14 to 23. Let's start God's word to you and to me this Lord's day. Chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. As he was going out of the temple, that's where he's been, that's where we've been for weeks, as he's con- had conflict with the leaders, it's the la- this, he, he's finished his public teaching, you all, and now he's going to go private teaching, but as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now, that statement got their attention. I mean, he, did, he said it, and they didn't say anything immediately. We're going to see they got some questions about this, and who wouldn't? I've got the slide up here that I showed you many weeks ago of the Temple Mount. It's a wonderful disc- uh, you know, depiction of the Temple Mount. You understand this is 35 acres of stone, of columns, massive columns of gold plating such that the white with the gold, the sun would hit it and you couldn't really look upon it. You know, this doesn't do it justice as if you were standing there even today to to look at the scope of the Temple Mount. When you look at it, don't you, you know, they would look at it and go, this thing is indestructible. Do you know some of the stones used in the Temple Mount are the size of Railroad box cars, solid stone, 100,000 tons. The stone from a pyramid is two and a half tons. These giant stones. Jesus says there's not going to be one left on top of the others. I want you to understand that they viewed the temple, you know, this is where we meet God. This is, where, this is, the, safe, this is the safest place on the planet. What are you talking about? This, is, this isn't going anywhere. Well, they come off of the, uh, the, the Temple Mount, they go down through the Kidron Valley, they come back up, and now they're over here on uh, the, uh, Mount of Olives. So, so you know, Temple Mount here, Kidron Valley, they go down, they come up, and now they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, which is about 150, 200 feet above the Temple Mountain. So this is where the story goes. They're sitting, they're looking down at it, okay? And the story continues from buildings to birth pangs. Look at verse 3. As he was sitting 
on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Those are the first four disciples he called. Tell us, when will these things be? Just note, they didn't go, is that really going to happen? They didn't do that. They just said, when? When will these things be? And what will be the sign, the attesting miracles, when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, okay, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit." Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved." Jesus calls these events birth pangs. It's, he's intentional, of course, in doing that. And you, you know this, that when labor begins, that doesn't mean baby here. That there's a time period, but it's the beginning. And, and it's painful and difficult. Don't miss that. But all, I'm not going to unpack this, but don't miss this as well. Painful, 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 hard. And then what, are we, what, are we gonna, what words are we going to put around the birth? Not, we're going to put awesome Wonderful, right? Don't miss that as well. Picture that he gives us. Five categories that he gives us that are going to be happening prior to his return. Very uh, general, but let me walk through them. I'm not even going to illustrate these because they're, they're quite frankly, self, uh, self-understanding. Uh, spiritual deception, beware. You know, there's going to be spiritual deception going on. People saying they're Christ, false gospels, etc. Global conflict, kingdoms, nations. Nations at war. Natural disasters. He, he just names two. We can include many, right? Famines, uh, earthquakes. Christian persecution will be happening. And then finally, family betrayal. Okay? Those five things will be occurring. What's really interesting is that the, the four guys who ask him this question, within, uh, really within uh, weeks and days and then over the course of their lifetime, they are going to experience spiritual deception, global conflict, natural disasters, Christian persecutions, and family betrayal. Jesus says it's going to happen. And men and women, if you read the book of Acts, in which follows the gospel account, the book of Acts is the description of the, new, the early church. What was the early church like? What was happening? What was going on in those days? Spiritual deception, 
Uh, global conflict, natural disasters, Christian persecution, family betrayal. You understand, uh, Paul, Paul and the apostles, they're put before kings and governors. Exactly what it says there in verse 9. And, and, and they were beaten. I mean, they've got scars on their backs. It's exactly what it said. They were flogged. Now, this for me, I mean, at least I, I think about it and I go, okay, Jesus said this stuff's going to happen. It's not it's not the end, but it's birth pangs. What, it helps me understand why they believed that he was coming at any minute, right? When you read the New Testament letters, you understand they're going, he, he, it could be tomorrow. Could, they, they lived with that sensation, so to speak, and expectation, and it makes a lot of sense to me, for Jesus said it, and they experienced. Now, put your Bibles down for a moment in your notes, because you're going to need both hands to do this. This is going to feel a little weird, of course, a little funny, but it's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's a worthwhile exercise, bear with me, that helps us when we try and understand prophecy, which Jesus is prophesying here. But absolutely critical that we understand this so that we, we begin to interpret and apply these things correctly. Okay, here's all I want you to do. I want you to take your right hand, hold it closer to your face, and hold up one finger. So it's almost touching my nose, but I got one finger in front of me, just like this. Okay? Then I want you to take your left hand, and I want you to extend it away and hold up another finger. Okay? So it doesn't matter how far or close, but I've gone like this. Now I want you to close one eye and look so that you can only see, you can only see your right hand finger. And then line the left hand behind it so you can only see the one. Is everybody there? Like I'm, I'm looking right now and if you ask me how many fingers are in front of me, I would say one. Everybody there? Okay, take the picture now. Because you guys look really, really weird. <laughs> look, I mean, 800 people doing this. What are they doing? All right, now, all right. Stay like that, open both eyes, and I, mean, I want you to do this. Now turn your hands to where you can see the gap between yours, just like I'm doing mine. This was my gap. Some of you are like this. I'm like, all right, now hold them there for just a second because I want you to look at this. This is, this is what we need to understand when we read biblical prophecy, that there are, there, there are things that are prophesied that happen. They, ha- they did happen, but then there's a time gap, and they, so to speak, happen again. Now, put your hands down, and let me give you the one everyone knows. For thousands of years, the Jews believed, and the Bible said, there is a Messiah coming, a Savior, the Anointed One, to rescue you from your sin. And they were looking and looking, and Jews today believe that Jesus was not Messiah because he came and he left. So they looked for thousands of years, looked forward, and you know what? Jesus came. Okay, everybody, he did come, historically Jesus came some 2,000 years ago, 33 years of, of life on the planet, and then in Acts 1, of course, he ascends to heaven, but he, when he ascends, the, the angel says, he's going to come back just like he left you, so Jesus came, this was the prophecy, Messiah's coming, but we know that even all the way through the Old Testament, there was another coming, are you with me now? So that, so that while, the old, while, while the Jews of the Old Testament looked down and said, Messiah's coming, they only saw one. What we understand is, oh, there's two. He comes and deals with sin. He's coming again one day to set all things right. Is everybody with me on this very simple illustration? We've got to keep that in mind when we begin to look even at what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus says will happen 
it did happen. And it happened, quite frankly, just as he said in the book of Acts. But does that mean it's not going to happen again in the future, the very things that happened to them? No, because we recognize just as there's a gap between the two. There's, there's a fuller fulfillment that's coming. Now, this is going to get very, I hope, clear we even look at the next part of this. We've talked about buildings, birth pangs. Now I want you to look at abomination. Look at verse 14. But, contrast, all the things that Jesus has just said, it's not the end. <laughs> not the end, not the end. But, contrast, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. That's Mark or an editor, of course, put that in. Jesus didn't sit, pause and say, let the reader understand. Mark did. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or get into anything, go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, the, the chosen ones whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then notice he ends this section the same way he began it in verse 5. So we're calling this an inclusio. It begins here, it ends here. Notice he ends with, and then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ. Here, he's back. He's over here. Or behold, here he is here. Do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed... Behold, I have told you everything in advance. The abomination of desolation. I mean, you want to go, that honestly, it sounds like a Transformer movie or the next Transformer movie or something. It sounds odd to us. I don't, we don't even know what to make of it. Can I say to you, to the original readers, when they heard that, they didn't sit there and go, what is that? That sounds weird. They knew what Jesus was saying. How did they know? Because they knew the Hebrew scripture and they knew Daniel. In Daniel 9, 11, and 12, three times Daniel himself speaks of the abomination of desolation. Now, Daniel is speaking 600 years before the coming of Jesus. So I'm looking at a timeline up here. Daniel's out here 600 years before Jesus comes. And read it, Daniel 9, 27. He's speaking of Messiah when Messiah comes. Now, what's interesting is Daniel 600 years earlier is speaking of when Messiah comes, but he's also speaking of when Messiah comes. Did you all get that? That he's speaking of when he comes, but also he's referring to when he comes. He, he's, he's, it's hard to see unless you do this and go, oh, there are two of these. And he says, when the Messiah comes, there will be this abomination of desolation. Now, take the two words. They're, they're not hard to understand. Of course, if you say, what's an abomination? It's something that is loathsome. It is, uh, it's gruesome. It's horrific and detestable. What is desolation? What do you think of when you think of that? When you think of desolate, you think everything's gone. 
And there's no people there now. It's been destroyed and devastated. There's going to be something that happens that's so detestable that God's people, I'm going to, just, I'm going to summarize a lot of this, uh, uh, abandon, leave the temple. Okay? This is, this is the, the prophecy that Daniel gives. Now, they understand when they read this, and I want you to note when it says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, it's a masculine uh, tense there, and so it's standing where he, it personalizes it, it's where he should not be. And that's how they would, would understand this. Okay, stick with me. 600 years before Christ ever came, Daniel's prophesying these things. In 168 BC, so Jesus is not here yet, Antiochus Epiphanes takes over the temple. And he goes into the temple and he sacrifices a pig on the altar. You tell me if, that, if that's not detestable to a Jew. Sacrifices a pig on the altar and then sets up a, a, an altar to Zeus on the altar. If you're living in 168 BC and you saw that happen, what would you think? What would you think if you knew Daniel? You'd go, what would you say? You'd, that's the what? That's the abomination. That's like, absolutely. And he, he forbid Jewish, you know, the practice of, of Judaism, you know? And they, the, the temple was desolate, desolated. Wow, it happened in 168 BC. Wait a minute. In 70 AD, Titus, and this is 66 all the way to 70, these, these, these wars going on, that Titus comes in and he lays siege to Jerusalem. And it gets so bad in these days within the walls of Jerusalem that mothers cook their children to eat. That children, brothers, will betray each other to side with a faction, even within the walls, trying to survive this terrible siege. Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the Christians who survived that siege fled to the mountains. <laughs> they literally, they, they fled to the, and do you know, when it happened, it was so urgent that they leave that they would be on their rooftop and go, Get out now. Don't go take care of the furniture. They would be in their field. Coats laying over there. Forget the coat. Go to the mountain. It's just this sense of urgency. We don't get out now. We won't survive it. It's literally just what, what exactly happened in 70 AD. And Titus comes in and desecrates the temple. So what I'm, I'm trying to help us see here is that when Daniel prophesied about the abomination of desolation and what it would do, yes, it actually was fulfilled in 168. Yes, it actually happened. And, and 30 years after this was written, okay, or not written, but, but these events occurred, it happened. The, the abomination of desolation happened. But what do we know about prophecies? That oftentimes there's a near fulfillment. Oh, this just now happened, so it's done. No, there's a near fulfillment that is actually foreshadowing 
a future fulfillment that will be the fullness and the final fulfillment. Is everybody with me on this? So that we read these passages about the tribulation, verse 19. We read Matthew's account. We read 2 Thessalonians and it speaks of the man of lawlessness. We read Revelation and we go, okay, yes, it happened in 168, it happened in 70, but there's coming a day still to come. This tribulation is gonna be brutal. There are people who say, verses 14 to 21, that it happened in 70 AD and it's done. That's not what we teach. That's not what we believe. We believe there's still this one to come. Okay. Now, I had you hold your fingers up for this reason as well, because I want you to think about this graphically. We live between the first and the second coming. Rather than us standing in this place fearful, I want you to think about this. We stand in the place where we can look back historically and say, God kept his promise. Jesus has come. You are a promise-keeping God, even as we have sung. And we actually get to look out into the future and say, if you kept your promise here, and Jesus, you said, I'm going to come back and set all things right one day, I don't know how, how much more secure you can feel. We know that he's a promise keeper in the past. We can trust he's going to keep it just as he says in the future. And that's why I say when you understand, even though the future holds some, quite frankly, difficult things, even though it holds those, you and I can have a deepening and abiding confidence. You feel, that, that's what I feel when I go, I mean, he's... He's in control. That's why I said that. When you understand these things, you don't look into the future and go, oh, 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 oh. no, you go, God's in control. And then secondly, I believe, <laughs> you understand this, you go, I'm secure in Christ. Now, why do I say that? Because, because the text shows that, because the whole Bible says that. Yet, many of us get hung up on verse 13. Look at it again. Some of you stopped there and never, got, never heard anything else I said because you read it and said, uh-oh, you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And, and some people hold to this, and some of you may be sitting there going, Lloyd, I'm, I, I realize this future's coming. It's gonna be difficult for believers, trust me. It's gonna get harder. And you look at it and you go, oh my gosh, I, I don't know if I'll endure Oh my gosh, if I don't hold on, what with what, what, the hard times coming? I don't hold on, then I'm gonna lose my salvation. That's not what that's teaching. Don't go there. Let's understand this verse in the context of the whole of Scripture and the clear passages that speak about what salvation is and what God has accomplished on our behalf. And let's remember in Acts 11 that the word was believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be what? Yeah, and then it didn't go and, and then make sure you hold on and hang on when the going gets tough because you might not be. No, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And when Paul speaks in Romans 8, doctrinal stuff, you know, this is theology stuff he's doing here, and he's trying to help us understand justification and how secure we are in it. And he begins to say, look, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Who's he talking about? And I, listen to this. He's talking about those who have placed their faith in Christ. 
If you, have you put your trust in Christ? If you have, he says, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ in light of what he's done. And then he says, neither, and the first thing he says is, neither tribulation or this or that. And he goes on and on. He just keeps listing all these things until you finally stand back exhausted and say, like he said, nothing, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Or Jesus himself in John 10. He's speaking about the sheep who hear his voice. And he says, my sheep hear my voice. And so if you're a sheep of Christ, you've heard his voice and you've placed your faith in Christ. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and, and I hold them in my hand. And then he says, and I and the Father are one and the Father holds my hand. And so you're sitting, you gotta think about this visually. You, you think you're gonna you think you can get out of the hand of Christ and God the Father? No. He is going to bring you through tribulation such that endurance, biblically understood and in this context around salvation, is not a requirement to get to the end. It is, in fact, the evidence that you're saved. Your enduring is an evidence that you're saved. Thomas Constable, one of my seminary professors, said it this way. I think, it's, I think it's helpful. He said, our ultimate salvation does not depend on enduring persecution faithfully, but on God's faithfulness to his promise to keep us secure. It's, it's about God keeping us secure. You know, it's tornado season, hurricane season, we see these terrible things that happen in communities, of course, around our area in the, in, in, in the southeast. And uh, when you see these pictures, you'll often see a, a brick home maybe or a home that's just leveled. It's gone. The tornado winds just moved it away. And yet standing right next to that will be this spindly little telephone pole. And it's like the telephone pole, and nothing happened to the telephone pole amidst, you know, 190-mile-an-hour winds. And what I want you to understand, this picture, when you see that, is this. The telephone pole, while the winds were blowing, the telephone pole didn't get deeper and stronger and hang on. Before the storm ever hit, that telephone pole was secure before the storm ever came. The storm just came and wiped away everything that wasn't secure. And then you go, whoa, that telephone pole has always been secure. That's the picture of us in Christ Jesus, you see. You know the temple that's now wiped away? I mean, as big as those stones, 100,000 ton stones wiped away. If you're in the temple made without hands, which is Jesus, nothing can destroy you. Nothing can wipe you away. No tribulation, no hardship. This is why I said we're secure in Christ Jesus. The last thing I said is that we can know that the Holy Spirit's at work in us. I need to hit this quickly. But look at verses 9 through 11. Notice he says, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you'll be flogged. You'll stand before governors for my sake as a testimony, key word. And then notice verse 10 is kind of weird. It just kind of jumps out in an odd way. Okay, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Preach, that's a key word. And then verse 11, he picks up the same theme of persecution. When they arrest you, uh, don't worry what you're going to say, but say what's given you. It's not you who speak, but it's the Holy Spirit. So you've got this, I call it a, it's not a mark and sandwich. It's almost like a mark and slider. It's a small one, isn't it? A little bitty one where you've got 
Uh, he's talking about persecution, persecution, and in the middle is preach, uh, preach the gospel. And both of these are talking about what you speak. And he says that the Holy Spirit's the one who speaks through you. That it's not even you. And what I take away from this is to understand that the follower of Christ, when there's persecution and hardship in your life and mine even today, that God uses that difficulty to put his spokesman in place to speak the gospel right where you are. I assure you, in this context, when they were unjustly jailed, wrongly charged, all those things, when they got their chance to speak, they didn't stand up and say, you shouldn't have me in here. I don't belong in here. You've treated me. They didn't do that. Okay, Read Book of Acts. They knew that. When, when they found themselves persecuted in these situations and they stood up to speak, can I tell you what came out of their mouth? I believe in, in the context itself, too. Let me tell you what came out of their mouth. I'm standing here today... Because I believe that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who lived the life I couldn't live and died the death I deserved and rose from the grave. And now, if anyone believes that Jesus did what he did for them, your sins are forgiven and you're clothed in his righteousness. That's what they said. That's the Holy Spirit at work in them. That's the Holy Spirit at work in us, you all. That's why we exist as a church. Is it not our first? To proclaim Christ in places that persecution has driven us, which kind of has me struggling a bit because I've thought about this and I don't really like it, but I wrote it this way. Maybe we should fear the absence of persecution rather than its presence because it seems in the New Testament that it was, I don't know what you want to call it, but it seems like that was the fuel God used to move the gospel throughout the world. Okay. Look, you knew those horns were going to sound, and you still jumped. And I did, because I didn't know when he's going to blow those horns. It's, it's silly, but it's also this. Um, in a very real way, while we all got shocked a little bit, it didn't totally derail you, did it? But what if I had said nothing? What if I had said nothing about the horns? What, I, don't know how much, I don't know how much you would have heard because you'd be sitting there the whole time going, why'd that thing go off? Uh, is there a fire alarm? Oh my gosh, there's a tornado. Come, uh, you know, who knows what you'd have thought. But what does Jesus say in this passage? He ends it this way, but take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. I told you in advance those horns were gonna blow and therefore, yes, it startled you, but it didn't derail you. Y'all, it's the same with these events that will occur in our future. It'll, it'll scare, it'll startle, it's going to be difficult. But it need not derail us. In fact, may it, may it produce in us actually a deeper confidence that God's in control, that I'm secure, and the Holy Spirit's at work in me. Let's stand together. Take a moment, would you, as you stand? What might God be saying to you now? What, you know, if we live here and we can look into the future and know God's in control, you know, don't just look out to the end times. What are you worried about tomorrow? What are you thinking about this afternoon? Because you're 
See, our, if, if he's in control, then that means he's in control right now. He's in, he's in control when you walk out the door. He's in control. What's he inviting you to trust him for even now? What's he inviting you to believe him for? Would you just have a brief conversation with God? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. When he comes, Christian, you will be standing because of his faithfulness. Amen. As you're leaving, I'm going to blow this horn, and I'm not going to tell you exactly when I'm going to... I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. You are dismissed. God bless.